Now we have here in chapter 11, I read verse 1. Now Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty man of valor, and he was the son of a harlot, and Gilead begat Jephthah. Now, this is the man that we're looking at here. And the first thing I would call your attention to is that he's an outstanding leader. But he has this black mark against him. He's the son of a harlot. And that simply meant in that day it was a strange woman, that is, a stranger from outside. Proverbs 2.16 speaks of beware of the strange woman. Well, that was the woman that came in from the outside who was a harlot. And so that's what his mother was. And Josephus says that she is a Gentile, and the Jewish writings have called her an Ishmaelite. Well, he was the son of a common heathen prostitute. It was a stigma that brands a person from birth, and I don't care who it is, and this man was exiled. He was excommunicated, ostracized. Notice verse 2, "...and Gilead's wife bare him sons, and his wife's sons grew up, and they thrust out Jephthah, and said unto him, Thou shalt not inherit in our father's house, for thou art the son of a strange woman." Now he's put out, and the law of Moses would also exile him. You will recall we looked at that some time ago in Deuteronomy 23, 2. A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Now, this is a handicap, though, that many men have overcome. Kings and emperors and generals, poets and popes have been illegitimate children. William the Conqueror. He didn't sign his name William the Conqueror. Do you know how he signed it? He signed his name William the Bastard. That's what he was. Don John of Austria also. And there were several popes. And we could give others. Now, as an exile, this is what Jephthah did. Verse 3 of chapter 11 of Judges. Then Jephthah fled from his brethren and dwelt in the land of Tob. And there were gathered vain men to Jephthah and went out with him. That is, men that had no purpose in life. They had been put out of society, as it were. And therefore, he headed a rabble. May I say, he was sort of an ancient Robin Hood. And here is this man with three hurdles that he'd have to get over to become a leader. To begin with, he's the son of a harlot. He's exiled by his brethren. And his leadership is only of a despised, rejected group. Now, he's not a very likely man to be used. But you see, God chooses things like this. And he was rejected and driven out. But you know, God moves in a mysterious way. And he chooses the things that are despised in this word. And God also humbles those he intends to use. You remember, he humbled Joseph, and he humbled Moses, and he humbled David. And our Lord Jesus himself, it was said of him, he was despised and rejected of man. And he's called a stone the builders rejected, has become the head of the corner. And they said, we'll not have this man to rule over us, but God hath given him a name that's above many names." You know, there are those today, though, friends, that claim to be sons of God. <laughs> They're illegitimate. I think God rejects those, by the way. You can only become a legitimate son of God by trusting the Lord Jesus Christ. This man's life is wrapped up in three words. Jephthah was exiled, and we've seen that. Now, Jephthah was exalted. And then we see Jephthah excited. Now, notice he was exalted here. It came to pass, I'll read verse 4, in process of time that the children of Ammon made war against Israel. It was so that when the children of Ammon made war against Israel, 
The elders of Gilead went to fetch Jephthah out of the land of Tob. And they said unto Jephthah, Come and be our captain, that we might fight with the children of Ammon. Now notice Jephthah. Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, Did not ye hate me and expel me out of my father's house? And why are ye come unto me now when ye are in distress? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, Therefore we turn again to thee now that thou mayest go with us and fight against the children of Ammon and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. You see, they make him a pretty good proposition here. Now notice Jephthah. And Jephthah said unto the elders of Gilead, If ye bring me home again to fight against the children of Ammon, and the Lord deliver them before me, shall I be your head? And the elders of Gilead said unto Jephthah, The Lord be witness between us, if we do not so according to thy words. He makes it difficult for them, but they have to swallow their pride and accept it. Now Jephthah takes charge. Then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and captain over them, and Jephthah uttered all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. And Jephthah sent messengers unto the king of the children of Ammon, saying, What hast thou to do with me, that thou art come against me to fight in my land? And I'm not going over it here, but you'll find an extended section where Jephthah outlines the way that they came into that land and that that land really belonged to them. And the way that they got it was a legitimate way. And the Ammonites, of course, were attempting not only to drive them off the land, but to exterminate them. Now, the thing that is happening over in that land today and has happened now for several years, especially since Israel became a nation, it's the repetition of the same old story, trying to get them out of that land and remove them from it and actually exterminate them, drive them into the sea. So this is the same thing that you have here. And Jephthah outlines the program, the history, and the reason they're in that land and the basis on which they occupy it. Now, I'll not go over it, but very candidly, it'll pay you to read it for the very simple reason. He has a very reasonable basis and reveals they have a very legitimate claim to that land. Now we come, and I must drop down now to verse 28. Howbeit the king of the children of Ammon hearkened not unto the words of Jephthah which he sent him. Now, the king of Ammon just totally rejected the paper that apparently Jephthah had sent to him. And he said that he would not accept it at all. Now we read in verse 29, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah, and he passed over Gilead and Manasseh, and passed over Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed over unto the children of Ammon. Now he leads out the army of Israel against the Ammonites. But when he passes through the land and finally gets there and gets a look at the Ammonites, he's a little fearful. And he does something that he probably, under normal circumstances, would not have done. Now, you must remember, this man had been exiled. He'd spent years in exile. Now, all of a sudden, he's exalted to the highest place. He's made a judge. And his natural reaction of a man suddenly elevated, that he becomes excited. And in his excitement and exaltation, you know, he could have made a very rash promise or a rash statement. And this is exactly what he did. Now, another thing we should consider, you must remember that he did not have the light that you have this day. He's one half pagan himself with a heathen background. He did know God, but he didn't know him very well. And God did not require him to make a vow. The victory was not the reward for Jephthah doing something. Jephthah had every assurance that God would give him victory. And yet, notice what he did. Verse 30, "...and Jephthah vowed a vow unto the Lord and said..." If thou shalt without fail deliver the children of Ammon into mine hands. Now, what'll he do? 
Then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, this man didn't need to make a rash vow like that. God didn't put it on that basis at all. He had every assurance that God had given him victory. To begin with, his cause was just. Listen to verse 27. This is Jephthah speaking now to the children of Ammon and the king of Ammon. Wherefore, I have not sinned against thee, but thou doest me wrong to war against me. The Lord, the judge, be judged this day between the children of Israel and the children of Ammon. Now, his cause was just. That's the first thing. Now, the second thing, God had elevated him to this high position. He should have recognized the hand of God had brought him there. And if God had brought him that far, he'd see him through. And then we saw back in verse 29 that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And, well, he just didn't need to make that vow. And he made it rather rashly. Imagine saying, whatever comes out to meet me, why, I will deliver it to the Lord. It'll be the Lord's. And after all, if it was a person came to meet him, they might not be in agreement with him. Now notice verse 35. And it came to pass when he saw her, that is his daughter, that he ran his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, thou hast brought me very low, and thou art one of them that trouble me. For I have opened my mouth unto the Lord, and I cannot go back. He made a vow to God, and he feels like he cannot go back. Now, did he offer his daughter in sacrifice? Let's look at this for just a moment now. There is a Greek myth about Agamemnon who offered his daughter Iphigenia at Aulis to obtain favorable winds when they were going to Troy. You may or may not be acquainted with that Greek myth, but he did actually offer his daughter. He was a pagan heathen. Now, Scripture's actually silent. It does not say either way, and I want you to see that. Scripture never finds fault with him. You need to note that. In Hebrews 11:32, it says, What shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel and the prophets. And he's put with a very fine group of men there, by the way. And the Bible never finds fault with him. Now, the Scripture says, Thou shalt not kill. And God made it rather specific about offering children. Over in Deuteronomy, the 12th chapter, at verse 31, I'm going to read this. Thou shalt not do so unto the Lord thy God, for every abomination to the Lord which he hateth have they done unto their gods. For even their sons and their daughters they have burnt in the fire to their gods. Now, God says, I won't ask you to do that. And you're not to do that. That's pagan and heathen. Now, let's go back a moment. God did not permit Abraham to offer Isaac. We need to recognize that. The whole point was, how far will Abraham go with God? He'll go all the way. He lifted that knife, and as far as Abraham was concerned, Isaac was a dead boy. But as far as God was concerned, that can't happen. God will not permit his man to do it, and he stopped him. Now, the construction that's placed upon the language here, I think, will determine the interpretation. Now, will you notice this? And that's verse 31. And I want you to notice it. Then it shall be, now this is Jephthah speaking, then it shall be that whatsoever cometh forth of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the children of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's. Now, that's important to see. Now, I'm going to change the reading just a little. Or I will offer up a burnt offering. Now, Jephthah said, I'll do one of two things. I'll offer a burnt offering or I'll offer a give to the Lord. And if he could give the first to the Lord, that would be top priority. 
Suppose it had been a friend, a neighbor that had come in. He'd have no right to dedicate or offer that individual. Now the question is, did he offer his daughter as a burnt offering? I don't think so. The thing that we need to note here is that what he did was she never married. And that was worse than death for any Hebrew woman. And for Jephthah, here's a man, he's illegitimate himself. He has a daughter. He wants her to marry and that he could have grandchildren. That's what this man wants. But that daughter now comes forth from the door and he's going to offer her up to the Lord. And that means she'd never marry. Now you say to me, can you be sure of that? Will you listen now to this girl? And I want to read this section, verse 36. She said unto him, My father, if thou hast opened thy mouth unto the Lord, do to me according to that which hath proceeded out of thy mouth. For as much as the Lord hath taken vengeance for thee of thine enemies, even of the children of Ammon. Now this daughter was obedient. She said, Whatever you promised the Lord, why, I'll be obedient. Now listen to this. She didn't understand it as a burnt offering, a burnt sacrifice. Listen to verse 37. And she said unto her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months, that I may go up and down upon the mountains and bewail my virginity, I and my fellows. What does she mean? Why, that she is not going to marry, friends. She's to bewail the fact of her virginity, that she is to be presented as a bride to some man. She's not. Her life is to be dedicated to the Lord. Now, let's go on with that. Verse 38, And he said, Go. And he sent her away for two months. She went with her companions and bewailed her virginity upon the mountains. Now, notice verse 39 and 40. And it came to pass at the end of two months that she returned unto her father, who did with her according to his vow, which she had vowed, and she knew no man. Now, what in the world does that mean? It means she didn't get married. She dedicated her life to the Lord. And it was the custom in Israel, verse 40 now, chapter 11 of Judges, that the daughters of Israel went yearly to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in a year. And the word lament means celebrate. That the daughters of Israel went yearly to celebrate. It was a time of celebration that here is a woman totally dedicated to the Lord and to the Lord's service. Hasn't anything to do with human sacrifice. Now, the thing that is important here, and I don't want you to miss, friends, is this. People have argued for years. I get that question on my question and answer program about as much as any other. Did Jephthah offer his daughter? That's not the point. He didn't offer his daughter in a burnt sacrifice. He didn't do that. May I say to you, God would not have permitted it. But the important thing is... And it's the significant factor that Jephthah kept his vow. His vow was something sacred. He did not trifle. It wasn't an idle boast. It wasn't a hollow promise. It wasn't a sham statement. The Word of God, you know, has some severe and sharp things to say relative to a vow. Now, I went over this thoroughly in the book of Leviticus but notice what Ecclesiastes says in chapter 5, verse 2. And we'll come to that, of course, later. But let me turn there. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. My friend, you'll do well to promise God only what you can see you can execute. Oh, I'm afraid today. There's so many Christians. They go down to an altar. They've been in little services where they burn candles. And they dedicated and dedicated themselves until it actually smells to high heaven. God says, don't be rash with your mouth. Now, verse 4 of Ecclesiastes 5, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it. 
for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldst not vow than that thou shouldst vow and not pay. Now, God says you're a fool if you make a vow to him carelessly. And you might think that over, Christian friend, before in the next dedication service you don't rush down to the altar and say, I'm offering God everything. May I say to you, this man Jephthah had a sweet, lovely daughter. He was an illegitimate child. His mother was a harlot. He wanted this girl to marry, and he wanted grandchildren, and now he dedicates her to the Lord. You know what he did? He kept his vow. Christians today are notorious at making vows and breaking them. I noted that when I began to move in Christian circles, because I was not brought up that way. And when I came in, I remember when I was in my teens, I worked in a bank. And I was bonded like anyone over 21, but I was not. And I went to a young people's conference, and I'd never had any exposure to anything Christian. Eighteen young people went forward that night, dedicated themselves to the Lord for full-time Christian service. I wouldn't go forward. I didn't know, but I wanted to, but I didn't know whether I could make good or not. May I say to you, out of those 18, not one of them ever entered full-time service. Have you made a vow to God? Well, if you have, he wants you to keep it. It's a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful. He cannot deny himself. Oh, he keeps his word. Let us keep our word. In Second Thessalonians 3, 3, it says, But the Lord is faithful, who shall establish you, keep you from evil. My, how wonderful he is and how foolish we are. Jephthah should be a lesson to us today. Now, when we come to chapter 12, friends, we come to a very important section here. We read, The men of Ephraim gathered themselves together, and they went northward and said unto Jephthah, Wherefore passest thou over to fight against the children of Ammon, and didst not call us to go with thee? We'll burn thine house upon thee with fire. And Jephthah said unto them, I and my people were at great strife with the children of Ammon. When I called you, ye delivered me not out of their hands. And when I saw that ye delivered me not, I put my life in my hands and passed over against the children of Ammon. And the Lord delivered them into my hand. Wherefore then are ye come up unto me this day to fight against me? Now, this was a jealousy of Ephraim. And you're going to find out, Ephraim, it'll be in that tribe that you have an infection. You have a real infection that led to a defection. Later on, when the kingdom is divided... In the north and south, the kingdom of Israel, you'll find out Ephraim is the very center of all of the rebellion. It goes back to their jealousy. Jealousy today, I would say, in the church is back of a great deal of our problems. I think what Paul said to the Philippians, he said, "...let nothing be done through strife or vainglory." That is, strife and vainglory, which is actually vanity or envy... Those are the two things that cause problems in churches today. And when I hear some person in the church complaining about the fact that they're not running it their way, it's an evidence of the fact that somebody there is very jealous. When I find someone who is opposing the preacher all the time, I know that back of it is jealousy. And that was the problem here. And this man, Jephthah, had to protect himself. They're going to burn his house down right over his head. Verse 4, Then Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim, and the men of Gilead smote Ephraim. Because they said, Ye Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites. And the Gileadites took the passages of the Jordan before the Ephraimites, and it was so that when those Ephraimites which were escaped said, Let me go over that the men of Gilead said unto them, Art thou an Ephraimite? And he said, No. Then they said unto him, Say now Shibboleth. 
And he said Shibboleth, for he could not frame to pronounce it right. Then they took him and slew him at the passages of Jordan. Friends, that was a time when your accent better be the right accent. But you see that certain of us in the English language find it difficult to pronounce Spanish words or French words. I remember I studied French in school, but the first time I heard a Frenchman talk, I thought he was putting on. I thought, well, that's not the way I learned French, but that's the way it is. It's difficult for us to frame that. So, shibboleth was a pretty good word. And what they said was sibboleth. They couldn't put the H in it. And believe me, that was bad. And we find in verse 7, Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then died Jephthah the Gileadite and was buried in one of the cities of Gilead. Now, Gilead is on the east bank of the Jordan. Now, we have three judges that are mentioned and they are practically zero. They are three vegetables, by the way. They did nothing. Well, they did something, but they didn't judge Israel. They didn't do what they should have done. Now, notice, and after him, I'm reading verse 8 of chapter 12, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. And he had 30 sons and 30 daughters, whom he sent abroad and took in 30 daughters from abroad for his son. He judged Israel seven years, then died Ibzan, and was buried at Bethlehem. Now, here's a man from Bethlehem. That's way down in the tribe of Judah in the south. And he was the next judge. But he had 30 sons and 30 daughters. And I would have thought he would have worked at getting his daughters husbands. But instead of that, he's busy getting his sons wives. And I suppose in the seven years he's judge. He didn't have time to get his daughter's husbands, and he didn't have time to judge Israel either. In other words, here's a man that gave all of his time to his family. Now, that's fine, but that wasn't what he was called to do. There's a great deal of nonsense that is abroad today. I heard the story of a preacher that he was on the way to a speaking engagement, and his little son wanted to talk with him. He just sat down and talked to his son and didn't make that engagement. And a great many people think that's wonderful. Well, my friend, that wasn't wonderful. That man was breaking an engagement, and he was spoiling a child. He should have told the little fella, you can show them that you love them and are interested in them without breaking engagements, friends. There is a time when certain things have to be put first. And I think he would better have served the boy who just sat down for a moment and said to the little fella, your daddy's got a speaking engagement, and that's important. And you would want your daddy to make that speaking engagement, wouldn't you? And I think the little fella would have concurred. And he said, now when daddy gets back, you and I are going to talk these things over. Maybe tomorrow we'll talk them over. I think that would have done more for the boy than what he did. All he did was make a spoiled brat out of the youngster as I see it. Now, I know I sound like a square, friends, but I don't approve of this judge here. I don't think he did anything. He is mediocrity, you may be sure. Now, the next one, verse 11, And after him Elon, a Zebulonite, judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. And Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried in Ijalon in the country of Zebulon. Well, that's all we know about him. He did nothing. He didn't even have 30 sons and 30 daughters. Apparently, all he did was twiddle his thumbs. Then we have the next one, and this is verse 13 now of chapter 12 of Judges. And after him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, a Pyrethonite, judged Israel, and he had 40 sons and 30 nephews that rode on three score and ten ass colts, And he judged Israel eight years, and Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parthenite, died, and he was buried in Pirathon in the land of Ephraim in the Mount of the Amalekites. He did nothing, but he out-jared Jared. Jared. Talk about keeping up with the Joneses. He really kept up with the Jairs, and he outdid him. He had only 30 sons, and he got them 30 little ass coats, 30 little donkeys. This man had 40 sons, and beside that, 30 nephews. That's 70. 
And I want to tell you, it must have been quite a sight to see that man drive out of town with his boys and his nephews. That would be 71 of them riding out of town. Why, if you'd have had a parade of Jaguars, Mustangs, Pintos, Cougars, and all the like, you wouldn't have had anything like that. This man really had a tiger in the tank. And out he goes with this crowd here. And that was all for show. It didn't contribute to the nation Israel. What music? They called the burra, the little donkey. They call him the mockingbird or the lark of the desert. And he can really bray. And that's all that this man contributed. Not much, friends. These are three judges we just pass over. Now we come to a judge that you can't pass over. Actually, he is outstanding, but he had probably the most glorious opportunity that any man ever had. Everything was propitious for a career and a brilliant future for this man, Samson, and he failed. That is the tragedy of this man's life. He was a sinner. There'll be some questions we'll have about him, but in chapter 13 we read now, "...and the children of Israel..." did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines forty years. These were the worst enemies that Israel had with the Philistines. Now, God raises up a man by the name of Samson to be the judge. And this is actually the last time we're going to read in the book of Judges that the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. We're going to find out that this small civil war that took place in Jephthah's day becomes a pretty big thing later on. And actually, the book of Judges ends in absolute confusion. And we'll see that later on. But now here is, in one sense, the man who is the last of the judges. It's this man, Samson. And this is the seventh apostasy, and the last that's mentioned. They were conquered by the Philistines, but only partially delivered through Samson. Actually, this man was a failure. There are three things about Samson we want to notice as we move through this section. We have the secret of Samson's success given, and we have the secret of Samson's strength given. And then we have the secret of Samson's failure given also. And again, let me repeat, never was a man born with a more glorious opportunity than this man. Now, let me read verse 2. And there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites. Now, we have been in the southern part. And now we go all the way to the north. You see, the Philistines actually were along the coast, mostly in the southern part, in what we call today the Gaza Strip. They were in that area. But you'll find out that this man Samson, although of the family of Dan, he comes all the way south, and you'll find him moving in that land, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and bare not. Now, here is the birth of this boy, Samson. His mother was barren, and actually his birth is as miraculous as Isaac was, just as much so are as Joseph and Benjamin. Now, in verse 3, "...and the angel of the Lord appeared unto the woman and said unto her, Behold, now thou art barren, and bearest not, but thou shalt conceive and bear a son." Now, therefore, beware, I pray thee, and drink not wine nor strong drink, and eat not any unclean thing. For, lo, thou shalt conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall be on his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. Now, you have here the birth of Samson. And it actually was, I think you could say, miraculous. And he was given a glorious opportunity, and everything was propitious for a career, brilliant future. 
And before he was born, God had marked him out. God raised him up for a gigantic task to deliver Israel. And they were in a bad way here. God had delivered them into the hands of the Philistine because of their sin. Now, the angel of the Lord that appeared to the mother of Samson said what he was to be, that he was to be a Nazarite. Now, you'll recall back in the sixth chapter of the book of Numbers, we had the vow of the Nazarite, the vow that he took. And it was a threefold vow. He was not to touch strong drink. fact of the matter is, he wasn't to have anything in the world to do with grapes. Verse 3, he shall separate himself from wine and strong drink. He shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of drinks, nor eat moist grapes, nor dry. He's not to even eat grapes. The grape was that fruit that spoke of the joy of the Lord. And we're told today, be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And what does the Spirit of God do? Why, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit of God. And it meant that Nazarite was to find his joy in the Lord and not find it in anything down here. He was not to touch strong drink. And the second thing, he was not to cut his hair. And what does that mean? Well, Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen, "...doth not nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him." A man ought not to have long hair. That's what the Scripture says. Now, I'm not going to make anything of that today, but it's a shame for a man. I'm ashamed a lot of these fellows I see around. And this is a verse I think could be put up in many places in our cities today. But the Nazarites, you see, would be willing to bear shame. And that's the reason a razor's not to touch his head. Then we're told the third thing, he was not to come near a dead body. In other words, there'd be no natural claim on him. He had put God first, and God would come above his relatives and his loved ones. The Lord Jesus Christ made it very clear that except you deny father and mother, and to deny them means not to ignore them. He didn't say that, but he means to put Christ first. And we've lost sight of that today. Now, Samson was a Nazarite. He was God's man. And that was the secret of his success, that he was God's man. And he was raised up for a great purpose. And his success was in God. And only as he performed his God-appointed tasks. But he never succeeded. You notice what it says here in verse 5? He shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistine. Now, success knocked at his door. He was a beginner. He only made a beginning of everything. He was a jack of all trades, but he never finished it. He'll begin to deliver Israel. He never finished that task. Now, we got a lot of Christians like that. You remember Paul said to the Galatians, "'Ye did run well. Who did hinder you? Started out well.'" We have a great many people who began to read the Bible. I'm thrilled today at the number of people over this land that are reading through the Bible with us. But I have news for you. There's some that fall by the wayside. They don't go on with it. They just begin. There are a lot of people that are beginners. I know a lot of Christians. I've been a pastor 40 years, friends. I've met Christians. Oh, Dr. McGee, I'm beginning to do this. I'm going to do this. They start something. But they never conclude it. They never finish the task that they're called to do. Now, will you notice that this boy is born into the family? And the woman bore this boy, Samson. And you have the interview, and I'll not go into the details here. I'll come down to the birth of Samson in verse 24. And the woman bare a son, called his name Samson. And the child grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times in the camp of Dan between Zorah and Eshtaol. Now, that's way up in the north. God began to move him there up in that particular place. Now, this is the secret of Samson's strength. 
I want you to notice something. This is very important to see that we'll come to next time. Samson's strength was not in his arms, although he killed a thousand Philistines with those arms. And Samson's strength was not in his back, although he carried the gates of Gaza on his back. And that was a pretty good undertaking. And Samson's strength was not in his hair, although he was weak when that was gone. Samson, you know, has been depicted as a big bruiser with muscles. I want to say something about him, but the thing to note, friends, is something that I think is very important here, and it's this statement concerning him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move him at times. He was only strong when the Spirit of God was moving him. And just cutting off his hair is actually not what weakened him. That hair was the badge. He was a Nazarite. And the Spirit of God was not on him when he had his hair cut. Why? Because he had failed in his Nazarite vow. He had not made good. Now, He's always depicted, as we said, as in these advertisements of certain tonics. You have before taken and after taken. Before taken, it's a little dried up weasel. After you take, he's a great big muscled bruiser. Samson, actually, friends, is the biggest sissy in the Bible or out of the Bible. And he was a little dried up milk toast man. He was not the strong man in the circus. He was the midget in the circus. Actually, his name means little son, S-U-N, little son. Have you ever noticed? He asked, for instance, his parents to get a wife for him. He didn't have nerve enough to go out and ask the girl to marry him. And he had long hair. (laughs) He was a sissy. And he was a riddle maker. We'll see that as we go along. And he played pranks like a schoolboy. He took off the gates of Gaza, walked off with him. And then he allowed every woman to make a fool of him. He's not a he-man. He's not the strongest man in the Bible. He's the weakest. And he's the picture on the bottle of vitamins or tonic before taken, not after taken. And this fellow was tied to his mama's apron string like a little sissy for that's what he was. And we are told that the Spirit of the Lord began to move him. And when the Spirit of God began to move him, he was strong. But when the Spirit of God wasn't upon him, he was as weak as water. It's very interesting. You know, the world today is looking for strong things. They wanted to know his strength. And they didn't realize God chooses the weak things. And that's the reason they marveled in that day. They said, how can this little midget, this little scrawny, milquetoast fellow, how can he perform those feats? There was only one explanation. God did it. You know, the world makes a noise. God says, be still and know that I'm God. Man made the horn. God made the silent depths of the forest. And you know, we come through the Christmas season with parades and tinsel and the tawdry and the trees and Santa Claus and all that. Wasn't any of that around at that first Christmas. It was really pretty quiet in Bethlehem when he was born. But Samson was the hero of his day. Why? He looked like he was strong, but he was not. Now, friends, as we come here to this man, Samson, I hope that we dispel the notion that he was a great, big, robust, virile picture of health. No, he was not. He was anemic-looking. He looked like he had one foot in the grave and the other in a banana peeling. And his picture is not after taking the tonic or the vitamins with the big bulging muscles, but it's before taking the little dried-up weasel. That is Samson. But the thing that made it amazing was the fact that this man, the Spirit of God would come upon him, and it was obvious that it was God moving through him. Now, I feel like he's assisting about every department that you can look at him, 
And we'll notice today, beginning of chapter 14, how this begins to come out in his life. And Samson went down to Timnath and saw a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and his mother and said, I've seen a woman in Timnath of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her from me to wife. Now, I submit to you that that's a sissy that would do that. Why didn't he go and talk to the woman and tell her that he loved her and wanted to marry her? And why didn't he go and talk to the father that in that day it had to be some sort of a business arrangement? Why didn't he take care of that? He's a sissy, friends. Mom and Papa's going to have to go down and do this for him. This is Samson. Verse 3, Then his father and his mother said unto him, Is there never a woman among the daughters of thy brethren, among all my people, that thou goest to take a wife of the uncircumcised Philistines? Samson said unto his father, Get her for me, for she pleaseth me well. But his father and his mother knew not that it was of the Lord that he sought an occasion against the Philistines, for at that time the Philistines had dominion over Israel. Now, he's going to use this as a ruse, you see, in order that he might deliver Israel. And he starts off well. Then went Samson down and his father and his mother to Timnath and came to the vineyards of Timnath. Now, they were told a Nazarite was to keep away from the grapes, but not him. And he came to the vineyard of Timnath, and behold, a young lion roared against him. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he rent him as he would have rent a kid, treated him like he would a little lamb. And he had nothing in his hand, but he told not his father or his mother what he had done. And he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. Mom and Papa had to go along in order for him to talk to the woman. Now, we find that, verse 8, now, chapter 14 of Judges, after a time he returned to take her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. Behold, there was a swarm of bees and honey in the carcass of the lion. And he took thereof in his hands and went on eating and came to his father and mother. He gave them and they did eat. He told not them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. Now, we find that his father went down unto the woman, and Samson made their feast, for so used the young men to do. And it came to pass, when they saw him, that they brought thirty companions to be with him. Samson put a riddle to him. He's a great riddle maker, too. My, what a boy he is. And he gives them a riddle. And he says, I'll give you seven days of the feast to find out the answer. And I'll give you 30 sheets and 30 changes of garments. And the riddle was, out of the eater came forth meat. Out of the strong came forth sweetness. They could not in three days expound the riddle. So what'd they do? Well, it came to pass on the seventh day that they said unto Samson's wife, Entice thy husband that he may declare unto us the riddle, lest we burn thee in thy father's house with fire. And so Samson's wife, verse 16 now, Samson's wife wept before him. She turned on the strongest weapon that woman has, tears. Samson's wife wept before him and said, Thou dost but hate me and lovest me not. Thou hast put forth a riddle on the children of my people and hast not told it me. He said unto her, Behold, I have not told it my father, my mother. And shall I tell it thee? And she wept before him. The seven days while their feast laughed. Well, I want to tell you, when you got a woman that's weeping for seven straight days, for every meal, it does get a little tiresome. And finally, he just had to give in, and he told her what the riddle was. And immediately, of course, the men of the city said unto him on the seventh day, they had the answer. They said, what is sweeter than honey, and what's stronger than a lion? He said unto them, he knew where they got the answer. He said, if ye had not plowed with my heifer, ye had not found out my riddle. He's good at making wisecracks, too, by the way. That's a good one. If ye had not plowed with my heifer, ye had not found out my riddle. In other words, you got that from my wife. Now, we find verse 19, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon. Now, Ashkelon is way down, friends, in the south. 
And he slew thirty men of them, and took their spoil, and gave change of garments unto them which expounded the riddle. And his anger was kittled, and he went up to his father's house. But Samson's wife was given to his companion, whom he had used as his friend." other words, Samson left in a pout that his wife had given away the secret, and he'd gone down and killed 30 men to get the change of raiment in order to pay off his wager. And of all things, why, he doesn't take her with him, because he's angry with her, and he's pouting. And so it came to pass within a while after, in the time of wheat harvest, that Samson visited his wife with a kid, and he said, I'll go into my wife and to the chamber. But her father would not suffer him to go in. Her father said, I verily thought that thou hadst utterly hated her. Therefore I gave her to thy companion. Is not her younger sister fairer than she? Take her, I pray thee, instead of her. Well, Samson didn't like this, of course. Notice what he does. Samson said concerning them, Now shall I be more blameless than the Philistines, though I do them a displeasure. And Samson went caught 300 foxes, took firebrands, turned tail to tail, and put a firebrand in the midst between two tails. What he really did was he tied two foxes together by the tail and then put on the end of that a firebrand. These two foxes would really take out, and they would scatter that firebrand everywhere. And what happened? When he'd set the brands on fire, he let them go into the standing corn of the Philistines and burn up both the shocks and the standing corn with the vineyards and olives. Then the Philistines said, Who hath done this? They answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he'd taken his wife and given her to her companion. The Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said unto them, Though ye have done this, yet will I be avenged of you, and after that I'll cease. And he smote them hip and thigh with a great slaughter. And notice why he did it. This is personal. This hasn't anything to do with him being the judge of Israel, delivering them. He's just avenging himself. And notice in verse 11, at the end of the verse, what he says, As they did unto me. So have I done unto them. That is his philosophy. He just avenged himself personally. And we're told now he's really got the Philistines riled up. And they're looking for him. In verse 14, when he came unto Lehi, the Philistines shouted against him. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the cords that were upon his arms became his flax that was burnt with fire. He let his own brethren bind him, by the way, to protect his own people. And then he just broke that as if it were nothing. We're told in verse 15, he found a new jawbone of an ass and put forth his hand and took it, and he slew a thousand men therewith. Now, again, you see the strength of this man. It's not his own strength. He could never have done it in his own power, of course. But again, he's beginning to deliver Israel. And if he'd only kept that before him, but he's not keeping it before him, 